Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today I have a truly interesting conversation to share with you. Uh, I just had the honor to speak with Dr. Patrick Moore. Uh, Patrick Moore has been in the environmental field for well over 30 years. He was a founding member of Greenpeace. He served for nine years as the president of Greenpeace and seven years as the director of Greenpeace International. Uh, he is you know, focused on rational environmentalism, uh, something that I certainly agree with. And me, uh, for, for, for the listeners out there who may not be aware, I, I am in the solar industry actively uh, with my company called Better Earth. Um, so I am very much focused on the environment and environmentally friendly policies. But there's a certain tendency in this space to go overboard. And we dissect and talk about some of those, uh, some of those areas in our conversation today. Uh, overall, super interesting. I learned a lot that I didn't know before and have a lot to research following this uh, podcast. I'm sure that you will too. I recommend that you follow Patrick on Twitter. That's where I first uh, found him and uh, buy his book, Confessions of Greenpeace Dropout. I think you'll really enjoy all that content, especially if you enjoy this conversation. So please, without further delay, enjoy this episode with Patrick Moore. Hey, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a true honor to have you on the show. And nice to meet another Patrick. <laughs> so for the audience out there who maybe is not familiar with your work just yet, would you mind sharing with them a little bit about your background, uh, what you did in the past and, and where you're at today? I grew up on a small, tiny, a tiny floating village on the north end of Vancouver Island with no road to it. And so everything was boats till I was uh, 14 and then I was sent to Vancouver to boarding school because the one room schoolhouse I went to in a boat every day only went to grade eight and there were usually only about 10 kids in it and one teacher. Wow. So that was a bit of a, a, a bit of a change going to the big city in Vancouver and learning city ways and which I enjoyed. So I, I've ha always had one foot in each uh, place in the country and the city, but we've moved to a smaller city with only a, about 60,000 people here on the east coast of Vancouver Island a few years ago, and we just love it here. We've got a glacier that we can see from six of the windows in our house. Wow. So, uh, that, so that's, that's where I am now. But along the way, I, I, I excelled in science and then life science, did a Bachelor of Science in Biology and Forest Biology, and then did a PhD in Ecology before that word was really known very widely back in the late 60s, early 70s. And... Uh, while I was doing my PhD, I heard about this little group that was beginning to meet in the basement of the Unitarian Church uh, with the objective of uh, taking a boat across the North Pacific Ocean to protest U.S. hydrogen bomb testings, which had begun there in 1969. And uh, so we did that, and uh, I sailed as the ecologist on the boat, and we made a big fuss. We got on Walter Cronkite's Evening News, and who are these crazy Canadians 
trying to tell the United States Atomic Energy Commission what to do. But uh, it wasn't very long until President Nixon canceled those tests because we had hundreds of thousands of people marching in the streets in, in 1971 over those nuclear tests. It was the height of the Cold War. And I went on to spend the next 15 years in the top committee of Greenpeace, first as a head of Greenpeace Canada and then as a director of Greenpeace International. But 15 years later, I had to leave because, as I like to put it, the peace had kind of got dropped off the Greenpeace and now it was just green. And humans were being characterized as the enemies of nature. Uh, whereas the peace in the beginning was to pre prevent the destruction of civilization as well as the environment. So I've always seen human beings as an integral part of nature and actually one of the more fascinating parts of nature. We're not the enemies of nature, we're part of it. And uh, we, we have actually done a really good job with the knowledge of ecology and environment in cleaning the place up. And even the developing countries now who are getting the wealth they need. I mean, as soon as you have a TV set, a refrigerator and a motorized vehicle, even if it's a scooter, you start looking around and thinking maybe we should clean the air up a little bit around here. And that's yeah. what has, uh, happens in every industrialized country that has happened just because people suddenly realize that that is a priority, whereas it wasn't before you had a few mo modern conveniences. And I've watched that happen all my life, but I also watched the environmental movement as we addressed all of the really serious environmental issues uh, start to make up issues, start to use fear and misinformation uh, as a tool for fundraising. And so I, with, my, with my old group, Greenpeace, I see that we started with a noble cause as volunteers uh, for many years. Uh, we ended up uh, being successful and having more staff and then having a payroll to meet. And when you have a payroll to meet, you have to put fundraising as a more important priority. Uh, and then uh, sometimes you turn into a racket and that's what happened there and what they're doing now with the plastic war and the, the climate catastrophe and the extinction of species is all made up so that's why the title of my new book is going to be fake invisible catastrophes and threats of doom and if you think about it nearly all the, the so-called catastrophes and threats of doom are about things that are either invisible, like carbon dioxide, or what's in GM foods that's bad. Has anyone ever shown you, you know, like on, on their hand, what, what, this is what's really bad in the GMO? No, therefore it must be invisible. Radiation is invisible, so it's easy to make up stories about it. As a matter of fact, it's really easy to make up stories about things that are invisible. Now, polar bears aren't invisible, but they are remote. So if something is really remote, the average person cannot verify with their own eyes what they're being told by the activists, the media, the politicians, and the scientists who are getting the grants to do whatever it is they're telling you is some catastrophe going to happen if you don't stop what you're doing. And so I'm, I've, I've got a series of 12, it'll probably end up being 15 issues, beginning with the climate issue, because the, CO, the invisible thing called carbon dioxide you can't point in the corner and say, look what the CO2 is doing over there. You can't look in the atmosphere and say, look what the CO2 is doing, because it's invisible, tasteless, colorless, odorless, and you can't touch it. And so they are able to make up any amount of doomsday scare stories about it. And the idea that half the species in the world are going to go extinct if the temperature goes up two degrees 
there's a bigger difference in temperature between New York and Miami than two degrees. And everything didn't go extinct in Miami because it was two degrees warmer than New York. So there's, there's an awful lot of really, really bad misinformation in this whole thing. And all you need to do to prove that CO2 is not the main cause of warming of the earth is to tell one short story. And that is that we are in an interglacial period now. And before we started pumping CO2 into the air from burning fossil fuels, its level was 280 parts per million in 1850, at what they call the beginning of the industrial age. And the temperature was about 14 degrees Celsius average, which is less than 60 degrees Fahrenheit. This earth is not very warm at this point in its history. It's one of the coldest periods in the history of the earth because it's the place to see an ice age that we are in, which is why there's all that ice on both of the poles. But in the last interglacial period, which was 125 years ago, they're in 100,000-year periods, and there's been 35 of them. Uh, and the last one was called the Eemian. It was at least three degrees warmer than this one. The sea was nine meters higher, as much as nine meters higher than it is now. And the CO2 was exactly the same as it is now before we started doing this, 280 ppm. So how can the planet be the same uh, CO2 and not be and, and, and act as though it's and be warmer. That's the thing. It was much warmer and the sea was much higher and yet it had the same level of CO2. So there's actually no historical hard evidence that CO2 has anything to do with the warming of the earth, that it's mainly the sun and water vapor. And, but nobody's, no, no, nobody is being told that. And so the, the, the frustration of being someone who's been studying this for 35 years does, is not on government, serial government grants like most of these people are who are saying they are climate scientists. They're getting their money from NASA or from NOAA or from big, you know, big government agencies or the, and university professors are almost all getting their funding from taxpayer money, except for the ones who do outside consulting work, and they're always accused of being sold out, whereas the pure scientists are the ones who take the taxpayer money. And that's uh, un unfortunate, the way things have gone. The fake, yeah. news and the fake news and the fake science has taken over uh, a majority of the media in, in, in the Western world and especially in North America, uh, but also in Britain and, and France and Australia. It's pretty hard for people to know what's really going on. And I mean, just take the coronavirus. Uh, who do you believe? I mean, it goes all the way from, don't worry, this will be over soon, to the, you know, half the population of the world is going to die. Yeah. And, and you don't know, if you're not an expert in that, you don't know who to believe. I'm not an expert in that, so I don't know who to believe. I am an expert in climate science, and so I do know who to believe. So we talked a little bit about the, you know, the CO2 and, and some of the discrepancies in, in the way that that data is presented to the public. Tell me about the, you mentioned the plastic war as well. I mean, uh, I've heard, you know, you see things about the Great Pacific, you know, I, you know, plastic island patch, whatever, and, you know, in the ocean and, there are many concerns about microplastics as, as plastics dissolve in, in the water. Do you, could you shed more light on, on how that might be? 
uh, you know, uh, mischaracterized? Yes, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is twice the size of Texas, right? So you'd think you could see it from a satellite or an airplane flying over. It would probably take you an hour and a half to fly over it. But it isn't there, Patrick. It is non-existent because if you, you go on the Internet and look for the image that is a composite from satellite so that they – because it's always cloudy somewhere. So yep. Yeah, they stitch together the images. Yeah. They stitched together the images of when it, of where it wasn't cloudy for over a period of days. And so you can get a composite photograph. It's not a drawing. It's a photograph. If you go on the Internet and, and, and Google Great Pacific Garbage Patch, mostly what you get are Photoshopped images. They just, show, they just draw a thing on there and say this is, the great, this is where the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is. So... If you if you call people out on it, the the funniest one I got was that only the clear plastic is is congregating there. That's why you can't see it because you, you can see through it. Uh, but that's obviously silly. The other one that's kind of funny is that the plastic is just below the surface, like as if every piece of plastic has a buoyancy compensation device on it. Things usually either float or sink. And then the next one you get, of course, is that it's microplastic. Oh. You mean it's invisible? Yes, it's invisible. So you can't verify anything if, you, if something is invisible. That's why it's an invisible fake catastrophe, because it, it actually is fake. The Pacific garbage patch does not exist. I grew up on the Pacific. I know about plastic coming ashore. It's actually quite wonderful how much less plastic is coming onto the beaches of the west coast of Vancouver Island, which... Like when the Japanese tsunami happened, we, we have the Japanese current here. Yeah. Uh, and it actually truly does come all the way from Japan. And so we had, you wouldn't believe the amount of debris, not just plastic, but, but the wreckage of whole houses coming up on the beaches. But that's, that's done. It's over. It didn't go into a great Pacific garbage patch because there's no great Pacific garbage patch for it to go into. So I, I could see the the imagery of a Great Pacific Garbage Patch, one double the size of Texas, being maybe overblown as far as the image that's painted in your mind. But surely, you know, you see uh, there's a lot of efforts to clean up plastic and they pull plastic out of the ocean. They pull it out of a lot of polluted rivers in areas of, uh, you know, East Asia and, and India, um, which are surely, you know, horrible for the environment. Um, you know, it, so is that completely an invisible, uh, you know, Enemy? No, that's not that's not invisible. That's litter. Yeah, plastic is not toxic. They they make out as if it is. It's not toxic. It is one of the least toxic things in the world. Your credit cards are made out of plastic, and they're not toxic. I mean, plastic is actually very durable. And people say, well, it won't biodegrade. Actually, there's some things that you don't want to biodegrade, like the roof on your house, for example. You you'd rather it was durable and the walls on the outside of your house. Well, anything in your house, you want it to be durable. I mean, food is not durable because it goes bad, but we don't want it to. We, we would prefer that it, and that's why we have freezers and preservatives and other things like that to keep the food from going bad. So the idea that biodegradable is a wonderful thing is only under certain circumstances when you want something to rot, you know, that... So they, they, there's a lot of misconceptions about this whole thing, but uh, the fact that plastic is so important for so many things, and now the supermarkets in my town are insisting that you use plastic 
bags for your groceries. One-use bags, so they won't get contaminated. And they won't let you bring in your own bags anymore into the grocery store because they might be contaminated. And what about all kinds of other things used, like in medicine, actually, plastic is one of the most important materials for gloves and caps, surgical tubing, blood bags. They're all made out of plastic. That's because the plastic is non-toxic, easy to sterilize. Not many people know that in hospitals, the floor coverings and the wall coverings can be made of vinyl that is impregnated with antimicrobial compounds so that it actually kills germs. It's the actual flooring and the walls kill germs if they land on them. And so the idea of banning plastic uh, for almost any purpose, the, the only plastic that I see as a really serious problem, and it's much, it's less of a problem now is discarded fishing gear, especially discarded nets that are torn and they're not useful anymore, but they're still nets and nets are made to catch fish. And they can also catch other creatures, marine mammals too. So there are examples where we should really focus fish, fishermen education and garbage has been, is, is really important. But if you just go broad scale and say we must ban all plastic, that's not going to happen for one thing. And for another thing, it's stupid. We should yeah. only, you know, plastic straws. When, when Costco canceled their straws, the new top that they created that was sort of like a sippy cup had, yes. more, it had more plastic in it than the straw and the flimsy cup that they used to use combined. Right. So they actually made something that had more plastic in it. And the idea that turtles are getting straws stuck in their eyes is because someone stuck it in there. You can go on the Internet and see these pictures of bird, of, of baby albatross that are cut open. And there's it's like as all I have in their insides is plastic. It's staged. And so much of the stuff about plastic is being staged by people and making to, and then saying it's real. So, so would it be a safe distinction to make that it's, so you're less worried about microplastics and those invisible things, but there is a legitimate concern with litter and garbage in the ocean and potentially animals consuming those. Not, not much. No. As a matter of fact, the, if you take, take a piece of wood floating in the ocean, right? Mm-hmm. Millions of tons of wood come down rivers every year in floods and storms and go out into the sea and break up into, into smaller bits and end up being bashed on the rocks into smaller bits. And that's floating around all over the ocean. And guess what? There's usually something growing on it. And there's 1,300 species of marine life that live on wood and plastic in the ocean. They use it as a home. If you see it, they sh- that Greenpeace shows a, a clear plastic bag with a crab inside it and implies that the crab is stuck in there, that, that it's caught right? No, it's using the plastic bag as a house. So when I I used to infuriate my Greenpeace comrades when we were sailing on the ocean, I would throw glass bottles overboard because I know they're going to go to the bottom and provide a habitat. Mm -hmm. Because an eel will use it as a house and a way to escape from predators. And there's nothing wrong with glass. It's not going to hurt anything. It's made out of rocks. And, well, sand, but the sand was a rock at sure, one yeah. yeah. And, and, and so there's so many of these things that are misconceptions. Like when I built my new house here in, uh, in, in Comox, which will be our last house, 
uh, and a beautiful place on the beach in this little village. Uh, the planner for the town, who I had to go through for everything permission-wise, uh, made me spend about $15,000 to prevent any sediment from getting on the beach from my construction lot. And my beach is an estuary that is three kilometers wide and six kilometers long, and it's a, it's a tide flat, and it's all made out of sediment, the entire thing. It's like billions of tons of sediment. And two cups of sediment were apparently going to destroy the environment. And there's so many rules like that these days. Uh, and in, in the U.S., I know, as, as you know, I'm Canadian, but in the U.S. there was this water act that meant if you had a puddle on your land, the, the federal government could step in and, you know, tell you what to do. And I think that is being done away with now. But uh, we're so much, so overregulated. And actually, in this coronavirus, uh, I've, I've seen the reports coming out from the U.S. about the kind of, you know, taking people's license plates for sitting in their car in a church yeah. parking lot. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty bizarre. And there, uh, the, in the first chapter of my new book, uh, I, I point out that I was 16 when I first understood what politics was reading, reading uh, uh, oh, I can't remember his name now, but I will someday, um, <laughs> a, a wonderful piece of philosophy uh, called On Authority and the Individual. And it basically makes you realize that politics is the struggle between uh, people who want to control everybody and people who want to be free and not be controlled by somebody else. And it, of course you have to have both. There have to be rules that are applicable to everyone, but there should also be a really strong emphasis on only making rules that are necessary and the, the kinds of things that people are saying they want with regard to fossil fuels and plastics and whatever, uh, it, it takes everybody's rights completely away. Was it, was it Bertrand Russell? Yes, it was Bertrand Russell. For the, for the audience out there. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think there is something to be said about sort of this runaway regulation that we're, we're experiencing um, in a lot of areas of government and, and in life and how uh, ineffective it is at addressing the problem and how sometimes it can even exasperate the problem because you think something is being done about it and, and you're actually not addressing the issue properly. And then, you know, how do you sort of channel outrage to make the right kind of regulations? Because certainly there's a need for some regulations, but not overregulation. Um, like if we took plastic, for instance, I don't think I'd want to live in a world where everyone just willingly throws all their garbage into the ocean. I'm sure at some point that would just become unsightly and, uh, and you know, hazardous. Uh, but on the other hand, I can see where overregulation about what's, uh, you know, being discarded could, can, you know, sort of muddy the waters and take away some of our freedoms and rights. Uh, and especially if it doesn't have any real consequences. I'm um, an example with the coronavirus is like that gentleman, uh, you know, who's out on a surfboard in Malibu, a paddleboard in Malibu gets arrested uh, or gets a ticket for being completely alone in the ocean during a time of social distancing. It's sort of like the regulation went wrong there. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, that is so true. Uh, I, I can't understand people who, 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 who want control for control's sake. Um, I'm just simply not interested in controlling other people, but I also know that there has to be laws. And, and, and one of the problems is 
many of the people who go into positions where you can control things are people who, who are wanting to be, be, make control of their, their point in life. Yeah, it's like a personality type. Do yes, you want to be in that position? I call them goalies in bureaucracy. You know? <laughs> and, 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 and to some extent, law enforcement attracts people who want to be in, in power too, and they, they have to be overseen as well. There has to be rules for them, and, and of course there are. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know where to go from here. Um, my, one of my main uh, uh, interests is forests. Uh, people don't realize that trees comprise over 90% of all the living biomass on the planet. Really? Some people, yeah, some people think it's termites. And, I've, uh, I've heard about, like, mycelium and, and you know, different fungi being a, a massive percentage as well. No, they're not. Uh, not like, t- take a, a, a mountain covered in trees. Oh, so overall mass as far as like how much yes. I understand. How much biomass there is, uh, which is basically how much carbon there is in life. Because uh, it's not an exact formula, but uh, life, is, life is primarily made of carbon. Uh, and and that, that's the thing that drives people like me nuts about CO2 is the fact that it's lower now before we started putting CO2 in, it was at the lowest it's been in the history of the earth, 180 parts per million at the height of the last glaciation, which was 18,000 years ago. But the climate catastrophists or alarmists or whatever you want to call them, the doomsday climate people, they don't want you to know about anything before 1850, right? Because that's when the fossil fuel combustion started and that's when co that's when human if, if emissions of co2 started actually having an effect on the level of co2 in the atmosphere it's gone from 180 during the peak of the last glaciation as the world warmed coming out of the last glaciation which we had nothing to do with took 10,000 years it went up to 280 because when the oceans warm they give off co2 it's called outgassing And so it got up to 280, which was still lower than almost the entire history of life. And what we have done is restored a balance to the carbon cycle in life. It was going down steadily for 150 million years. It had been 2,550 million years ago. And life was flourishing then. There was life from pole to pole. There were forests for about, about 200 million years uh, in between the last ice age and this one, there were forests in Antarctica. They just had another announcement the other day about all the fossils they found and the pollen of all the different species of plants that were there. So we are in one of the coldest periods in Earth's history today, not just the last glaciation. That was, these are cycles that are going on now in the Pleistocene Ice Age. And They are pretending that the Pleistocene Ice Age is over. There's absolutely no basis in history or fact to say that with any uh, certainty. As a matter of fact, it's much more certain that we still are in the Pleistocene and there will be another major glaciation in 80,000 years after a gradual descent in temperature. It's, it's been happening for 2.6 million years and there have been 45 glaciation periods during that time. The last ice age, which was named the Karoo, look it up, K-A-R-O-O, lasted for 100 million years between 
360 and 260 million years ago, there was an ice age that lasted that long. And then it got warm and stayed that warm until about 30 million years ago. And then it started to plunge into a world covered with ice on either pole, which is the way it still is now because we're in an ice age. Yeah, I think it's it's hard for people to imagine the the scope of, you know, like planetary climate changes, uh, you know, especially when we're, we're so centered on, you know, human history even uh, feels yes. like such a long amount of time, never mind, you know, these geologic changes. Um, and I, I think about that a lot when you think about what they talk about when they, you know, uh, when you hear people essentially fear mongering about, you know, the, the existential threat of global warming is really like, what I hear is they're talking about like the sea level may rise um, and put in cert- put certain cities underwater. You said yourself that, you know, there was a time where, where uh, sea levels were nine meters higher than they are today. It seems like, you know, that's kind of bound to happen no matter what, you know, the places uh, on the coast are bound to be vulnerable at some point in the future. Um, and it seems unlikely that anything that, you know, we would do in the course of, you know, even a thousand years would uh, accelerate that to be so fast that we couldn't recover from it. I've always said you won't have to run Patrick. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at it like, even. yeah, it's, it's exactly that. It's, it happens. It seems like it happens right now, right in front of us. You know, we see the annual hurricanes that might put a city underwater for, uh, you know, a period of time before we're able to, uh, you know, recover. If you think of uh, what happened in new Orleans, um, you know, well, what happened ago. in New Orleans was largely because people are already living below sea level. Yes, yeah. And, 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 and storm surges can be 12, 15 feet, which is a big tide. Yeah. And the, the truth of the matter is the sea level has ranged over 1,000 feet in history. At the height of the last glaciation, which was only 18,000 years ago, the sea was 420 feet lower than it is today because of all the water that became ice on the land and the huge glaciers that came down into the Dakotas. And so the, 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 the sea level has also been 400 feet higher in the past than it is today when the world was warmer. It's not going to get like the Eocene thermal maximum, which happened 50 million years ago, anytime soon. They're, that's what I say that they're so desperate that they're saying two degrees Celsius increase in temperature will bring about a kind of Armageddon. And that's completely ridiculous. The world has been 10 degrees warmer and, and lush from pole to pole. And the, the, I, I've been on Twitter lately, people are saying, well, the equatorial region will become uninhabitable. Actually, when the world warms, like it has done over many times, the, the equatorial temperature either stays about exactly the same or goes down a little bit. And almost all the warning, warming is inordinately towards the poles. The poles warm more than anywhere else. So you have a much less difference in the temperature between the equatorial region and the poles when the earth warms. When the earth cools like it is now, it's because it cools at the poles where the ice is. People should uh, go to the Antarctic and the North Pole if they're worried about not enough ice. And Let's take another myth, is the polar bear myth. How many years, 35, 40 years, they've been telling us the polar bears are going to go extinct because the ice is going to melt. Well, the ice has decreased somewhat, but
but it seems to have stabilized again now, even though we are continuing to put more CO2 in the atmosphere every year than we did the year before, except for this year, I would imagine. But it'll come back. And so, so they, they act as though there'd be more polar bears if the whole Arctic Ocean was covered in ice, because that would be more habitat, right? But if the whole ocean was covered in ice, how would the plankton grow? And if the plankton can't grow, how would the fish, what would the fish eat? And if the fish didn't grow, what would the seals eat? And if there were no seals, what would the polar bears eat? So it's important to have an open sea up there all through the summer in order to grow the food for the bears. Then it freezes over in the winter, which it's not stopped doing that. People, Al Gore said, I think 15 years ago, he said that in 10 years, there'd be no ice in the summer in the Arctic Ocean. Yeah, and that's sort of where, you know, like I've always been environmentally minded, but that's sort of where I started to lose touch with what was sort of the mainstream environmental science when, when you, you know, those predictions did not happen and, and they still seem far from true. And, you know, for the audience out there, I should remind them, I, you know, I own a solar company. I, I work with environmental things every day. We host another Better Earth uh, podcast where we host people who help you, you know, transition to sustainable living um, and, you know, want to clean up pollution from dirty beaches and things like that. Like I'm all for the environment. It's just a number of these claims uh, have not been, you know, have not shown to be true. And I think, uh, you know, there, there's certainly, uh, there seems to be profit motives for, you know, preaching existential disaster. And it seems a, a common thread across a variety of political uh, designations. Yep. It is almost entirely about power and money. Uh, there's $2.5 trillion being spent on the climate issue now, including the technology that's being forced on uh, the, the uh, energy people. And if, if, if we would just worry about pollution, that, you know, that's really important. We want the water to be clean, the air to be clean, and we want people to be healthy. Uh, we want, we, 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 have, we have priorities that are important, but the priorities that are being put on us now by the environmental movement gone crazy, uh, like, the, like the Green New Deal. I mean, I, I've pointed out, and people just won't listen. It, 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 you talk to any farmer, any logger, any miner, you know, here's what I wanted to share with people. The downside of mechanization and technology. The upside of it, of course, is it has eliminated... 90% of the toil and drudgery that when everything had to be done manually with by workers. And, and it also has reduced the number of people that do the work of providing things for everybody else. And in particular, the, the downside of it is that now there's almost only 10% of the number of people in the country as there is in cities. And so it's easy because the people in the cities are living in a completely artificial environment. It's yes. easy for the green movement to convince them that the people out in the country who are digging and sawing and drilling and hacking away at things are the enemy of, the, of nature. When in fact, the only reason those people are doing that is so the people in the city can live. They're growing food, they're mining minerals and, and fuels, they are harvesting trees and planting them again, and managing the land uh, better than it ever has been in the, in the past, because there are a lot of rules now about what you can and can't do, and many of them are good rules. But 
The fact is, it makes it possible for them to fundraise from the vast majority of urban people on a completely false premise. The premise that the country people are just earth rapers and that the city people are all really good because they don't do that sort of thing. When in fact, the only reason it's being done is for their benefit. So they can have food to eat, energy to run the city with and materials to build it with. Where do they think the steel and concrete comes from anyways? And how do they think it gets manufactured and, and transported into these cities? And so if we banned fossil fuels, first there'd be no tractors, then there'd be no trucks to haul the food in that the tractors worked to produce. And what do we go back to serfdom? Uh, it, it really is ridiculous that they could actually get away with getting even three people to support such a stupid idea. And yet masses of people agree with it. The entire Democratic Party agrees with it. Apparently, they all put their hand up, yeah. you know. Well, that's, and, yeah, I mean, it's stunning to me to see the hypocrisy. Like even like living in Los Angeles here, you know, you see one picture with a, with a sea turtle with a straw in its nose, horrible, whatever, uh, you know, and they ban plastic straws. Like, you know, it felt almost instant as far as governments move, you know, is within a, a month or two, you know, restaurants are using the paper straws or they're using those higher plastic content, you know, sipping lids and things. Um, meanwhile, you know, the, the homeless problem here is, is unbelievable. It's like a third world country in some places and the, you know, the human excrement and feces and, and waste and things like that, that gets washed into our water. Uh, there seems to be no attention paid to that, which is a far bigger, uh, you know, ecological disaster. Is there, and I, we never hear in the news anything about the coronavirus and the homeless people and are they afflicted with it? Is uh, you know, it's, I, I have not heard much either myself. I've seen certain areas. It seems like it actually uh, created an opportunity to clean up some areas that had not been cleaned before. Like I've driven around Los Angeles and seen under some overpasses, people were moved. So it seems like they found some temporary solutions for homeless people, but it doesn't seem to have ravished their community any more than uh, anyone else. And, and in Los Angeles, I, I probably, I'm not definitely not an authority on this, but from uh, just my own you know, the people that I know here and everything, it, it doesn't seem like it's nearly as bad as it is uh, in places like New York. I, oh, no, wow. it's the same, same where I am. There's only three in the hospital here out of a hundred thousand. Yeah. They, I mean, they brought the, uh, you know, the Navy hospital ship uh, to the coast of Los Angeles, uh, yeah. but still, you know, it doesn't seem like there's been any overcrowding of the hospitals whatsoever. No. And again, you know, it's, it's tough. I think we'll debate on that one forever because we won't know if social distancing is the reason why the cases are so low or if, uh, you know, the disease was never uh, as, as bad as we, we, you know, assumed it might be. So well, the, the real question is, I'm sure social distancing has a role in reducing transmission. Yes. But when do you, stop, do you social distance for the rest of time? That, this well, is the real question. What, yes. What's, what's the yeah. timing on this thing? A hundred percent. And this is where my concerns about overregulation come in, because this is one of those things where as a population, we're sort of emotionally charged and, we're, and we could be afraid, you know, we're in a fearful state based off what the media says and everything. And it's a great opportunity for politicians to pass legislation that contains a whole bunch of stuff that we probably wouldn't have rationally agreed upon. But given the current circumstances, something has to get pushed through. 
We even saw that with the stimulus bill, it was not just a stimulus bill. It had a whole bunch of other stuff crammed in there because it's an opportunity for more things to get passed. Um, And it happens, you know, sort of when the voting population is the most vulnerable, which is very concerning to me. Yeah. And well, you know, a lot of people are afraid of death and it's not a good uh, psychology really. Um, Maybe it's because I, I, I almost died twice from the sea and once from the winter. Um, and I was never afraid while that was happening. And I, I, I managed to uh, save myself. And in, at one time it was eight of us who saved ourselves out in the wow. sea. Uh, but um, it would be really good if people would realize it's stupid to be afraid of dying because you're going to die, you know? And well, it's, yeah. what's the point of being afraid of it? Well, it seems like one of those things, you know, that gets like when you think when you when if you're placing a vote to ban plastic straws, you feel like you're doing a responsible thing that is actually protecting a lot of people. Uh, You know, it's that sense of responsibility, that sense of you're doing the right thing about some of these decisions, which is interesting to me. And like you mentioned, when you when you talked about Greenpeace and the origins of, of that organization of how it started with, you know, a band full of activists and people who are really, you know, focused on a noble cause. And then at some point there's payroll and fundraising, um, yeah. you know, to cover that payroll. And that's sort of when things, you know, it's when it's kind of like a runaway train. I think we another example people might recognize is with, uh, you know, like cigarettes and tobacco usage. Uh, you know, there's sort of been this runaway train of interest groups and lobbying efforts to, you know, outlaw cigarettes and nicotine related products. And you can still buy cigarettes at my local store here, but you can no longer buy the vape cartridges because those have been deemed unhealthy. Um, even though, you know, there's no evidence that they're any worse than cigarettes. Um, so it's sort of one of those runaway interest groups that, that, you know, it's the infrastructure is in place. The payroll is there, you know, they, they probably have donors and things that are keeping them afloat. Uh, to push a message so hard that it's probably past the point of actually having positive returns. You know, it'd probably be better if we didn't have cigarettes and instead we had vapes. Um, but, you know, it's the interest group carries on. And uh, yeah. it seems to be a similar issue with some of these environmental groups, which is they've pushed past the point of effectiveness and it's getting to the point where it's, it's over-regulation. And sort of like, how do we address that? Have you ever considered possible solutions to addressing just the psychological problem there? Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about one issue that I think is really important, especially in this plastic discussion. Sure. It's not just plastic. There's a thing called combustible waste. And it's all of life origin. It's wood, paper, and plastic. People don't think of plastic as being from life origin, but it's all made from fossil fuels pretty well. And all fossil fuels are of life origin. They were once plants or plankton. And... Uh, they are actually organic in the sense that they are carbon-based materials, all three of those. And uh, if, if you have paper or plastic or wood that is not suitable for reuse, like a nice piece of timber coming out of an old building, you can reuse it for something, or recycled, like melting down glass and making it into something new, and plastic it can be re- much plastic can be recycled. But there is a lot of paper, wood, and plastic that is not suitable for recycling. For example, pizza boxes, they won't let you, let you recycle those. Because So what do you do with a pizza box? Uh, all the little bits of wood in a demolition of a house. You're not going to try to make something out of that. They're full of nails and it, little bitsy things, got all different lengths and everything. And with plastic, of course, uh, thin plastic is not usually recycled. Uh, we use our 
plastic bags again and again and save them in a container. So if they, we need them for something, but there's a, there's a surplus of them for sure. And many other plastic things. A lot of the packaging is not recyclable. Energy from waste is a highly developed technology. It is used extensively in Europe and Japan, but not so much in North America because land is cheaper here. So we use landfills and that, that, that we, we're putting garbage in the landfills, right? It shouldn't be called garbage. It should be called energy from waste. And it should have a value because it, it, these, these machines that they've built, they're big facilities like, like a gas-fired power plant type size thing. And they can take the energy, the, the waste that is combustible, like all the other uh, stuff, like all the metals are easily recycled. All the glass is easily recycled. The uh, another product that I can't think of right now that is easily recycled. But anyways, there's these things that aren't easily recycled that can be burned, and we could reduce the amount of fossil fuel we were using for making electricity and heat by using these combustibles. If you go to the airport in Minneapolis, St. Paul, all the trash bins there have energy from waste written on them because they have an energy from waste plant. There's one on Long Island in New York too. I believe there's one actually uh, in my hometown uh, in the suburb of Boston. Uh, they, that's how the city is run as a, is an energy from waste plant. Yeah. And that, that, that would do it in almost every country uh, if they would just, but the green movement is opposed to them. They're fought tooth and claw all over the place because it's combustion and it produces CO2 and it has a, it has a pollution issue, but the pollution control technology is so good now that it's, you can burn anything clean if you have the right technology on, on your, on your machinery. So that is, that, that is a solution. Another solution, like the truth is, if we really wanted to reduce fossil fuels by a lot, like more than 50%, we could do it with a combination of hydroelectric being built more, more hydroelectric, but the real solution is nuclear energy. And I'm, I'm glad you're bringing that up. So for, for the listeners, I, I've had a couple of nuclear experts on the show before, uh, notably... Uh, both from MIT, one Michael Short had a really great, uh, you know, lot of information to share about nuclear for anyone interested. But yes, Patrick, I, I completely agree with you. Nuclear is a huge part of the solution. I've, I've, I've been to the MIT Nuclear Engineering School when I was chair of the co-chair of the Clean and Safe Energy Coalition, supported by the Nuclear Energy Institute. My my co-chair was Christy Todd Whitman, former governor of New Jersey, and. Uh, former head of the EPA under uh, George W for one of for his first term, I think wow. during nine 11, actually she was the head of the EPA. Very, a very nice uh, con- conservative, but not, you know, not far right conservative person. Sure, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've, I know a lot about nuclear energy uh, as a result of the six years I was in that position. I already knew quite a bit before but uh, it's probably safe to say with nuclear, it's probably the most misunderstood form of energy, at least in my opinion, my observation, it's got to be the most misunderstood form of energy. That's because radiation is invisible and they can make up any story they want about it. But the truth is, let me just run it down. Please. You could have every large ship run with nuclear energy and not use, not use oil. 
all the Russian icebreakers are nuclear powered. Six countries have nuclear navies. If you can take a submarine underwater for three months with a nuclear power plant, you can run any boat with a nuclear plant. And, uh, and our, our uh, Navy air for aircraft carriers are also nuclear exactly. powered currently. And the, 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 the biggest whack though is heating and cooling buildings. All heating and cooling could be done with nuclear electricity. The entire thing. That's why France has such a low CO2 emission because it, it, they got half the CO2 emission of, of many countries, even less than half of many countries that, that use fossil fuels for all of that. So if we would use electricity, I mean, heating with electricity is, is, is not difficult. All it requires is baseboard heaters, or you can have central electric too, or you can have in-floor hot water electric heated. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to do it. And all air conditioning is run by electricity now, but that electricity is largely being produced by fossil fuels. That fossil, the, the, all that could be replaced with nuclear energy. If we had 10 times as many nuclear plants as we have now, we would eliminate a vast amount of fossil fuels. I'm in favor of fossil fuels because I believe CO2 is entirely beneficial. That's why I've, I've become chair of the CO2 coalition in Washington, D.C., which is a position I hold now. And I have, I have 55 scientists, engineers, and economists in the membership, and some of the top physis, atmospheric physicists, Will Happer and, and Richard Linson, on our board of directors. And we have a fantastic executive director, Caleb Rossiter, who is both a university professor uh, in science and politics, political science, actually, and... Uh, He's also been in, the, in government in, in high places. So we know, all of us know, that carbon dioxide is the basis of all life on Earth, that is the most important ingredient for life, and that it is at a very low level in the global atmosphere compared to almost the entire history of life, that it was 10,000 ppm at one time. It could have been even more than that earlier in the Earth's history, but we can only go back so far in understanding what its level was 500 million years ago, say. But the, the truth of the matter is, is, uh, is warming of this planet would be beneficial in almost every way. A one degree C warming pushes the agricultural zone 100 kilometers further north in Canada and Russia, which is the biggest swath of land at any latitude. And it, it, it just enough to drive you crazy. You know, is there even, even, even I laughed when people said it, that plants like it when you talk to them, because I thought that was kind of silly. But the fact is, they do like it when you talk to them, because you are breathing out 40,000 ppm of CO2, and that's their food. So it does make them grow better. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, I, is there anything to be said about, you know, because another common concern uh, with the CO2 in the atmosphere or you know, greenhouse gases increasing the heat in the atmosphere is that it, uh, in a higher heat environment, storms and those sorts of things will also just be, you know, more energetic because there's, it's a higher energy sort of environment. Is that uh, anything to be concerned of or, or do you have any thoughts there? No, it will generally become calmer. Uh, and in particular with cyclones, cyclones are caused by the difference in heat between the temperate and tropical areas. If you take the, the tornadoes in the United States, why does the United States have 90% of the world's tornadoes? Not many people know why. Yeah, Not many yeah. people even know that it has 90% of the world's tornadoes. 
but it does. The reason it does is because there is no barrier between the Arctic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico down that strip. It used to be an ocean. It was the great inland sea. And there's no mountains in the way. So the hot air of the Gulf and the cold air of the Arctic can collide there and do regularly. And out in the oceans, what happens is the cold air from the north and the warm air from the equatorial region. You may notice that, 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 the, tornado, that the hurricanes don't happen at the equator. They happen in between the equator and the north. And in between, the, some of them, there are not many in the southern hemisphere. They're mostly in the northern hemisphere. Yep. But if it, it, when the world warms, it warms inordinately towards the poles. There's, there's, there's a fake news here in Canada, which is true, but it's being used in a fake way. They're saying that Canada is warming twice as fast as the, as the average for the world. As, as <laughs> it's true. We yeah. are. Yeah. We're in the north. So the further you are towards the poles, the more the warming is occurring. You know, Canadians have, this is the coldest country on the planet, Canada, out of 195 countries. The average temperature of Canada is minus 5.35 Celsius. Wow. Which is cold. Yes. And Canadians are more worried about global warming than people in China, India, Nigeria, and Brazil, and Saudi Arabia. In other words... The people who live in the hot countries are not worried about global warming. Actually, they, they have no reason to because when the world warms, it doesn't really warm at the equator. But Canadians, we are fleeing from the winters. We're, 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 we're called snowbirds in Florida. And why, why are people fleeing from the cold and worrying about it getting warmer at the same time? It it is absolutely nonsensical that people in the coldest country in the world would be worried about warming. But we have a carbon tax here, and it just doubled during this crisis. Wow. And, yeah, and, uh, and we have a, a prime minister whose highest station in life was a snowboard instructor. He just happens to be the son of a former prime minister who had some education. Yeah. But this guy... Uh, Justin Trudeau is a member of the Laurentian elite, which is basically the establishment of central Canada. And we're living in a country that's supposed to be a democracy with 10 provinces in the same way you have 50 states and three territories in the north. And the entire country is run by two of the provinces, Ontario and Quebec. If they agree on something, the rest of us are chopped liver. And they do agree because... Ontario gives in to Quebec's demands, uh, and then they agree. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, speaking of like, you know, Justin Trudeau and, and Canada's politics and, and, you know, sort of the aggressive steps towards, you know, the kind of the, kind of the woke environmental policies, I'd love to talk briefly about the uh, Paris Climate Agreement, because that's something that is still talked about uh, a lot in the, uh, you know, our current political uh, you know, debates and, uh, you know, coming into this new election here, talking about re-entering the uh, Paris Climate Accord has been a, a major talking point for Democrats. And yeah, I'd like to shed some light on sort of why that deal makes no sense, especially for countries like the United States or Canada, which have already mostly, uh, you know, ha have much lower uh, 
overall pollutants being uh, put into the atmosphere compared to places like China, India, Pakistan, other nations like that, which have, you know, uh, the way that our deal was structured for that agreement versus the way their deal was structured was very uh, lopsided, to say the least. Do you, could you shed any light on that? Well, let's go back to when uh, President Obama, nearly a year before the Paris meeting, went to China and came back announcing a historic climate agreement with China. What the agreement was that, is that if, if China would sign the Paris Accord, they didn't have to do anything until 2030. So that was 15 years of grace were being given to them. And they're taking advantage of it as full as they can. Uh, their, their emissions and, and India's emissions have skyrocketed since Paris, whereas the United States is the only large industrial country whose CO2 emissions have gone down for the past 10 years, every year. The reason is largely the shift to natural gas from coal in electricity production. And there's nothing wrong with that. Oh, yeah. But the Greens, are, the Greens are against natural gas too, of course. All the Democrats put their hand up to ban fracking, which is the reason why gas can replace coal, because it's now cheaper than coal for the same amount of electricity, and it only produces half the amount of CO2 per kilowatt hour produced. So that should make the Greens happy. But no, it does not make them happy, because they are a zero-tolerance bunch. And, 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 and they, yeah. they, if they, are, they, they should be fought tooth and claw, because if they ever did get control now with their so-called woke policies, they would destroy our civilization completely, because that seems to be their policy is to actually bring it down. And, if, and, and I hear them saying this coronavirus is the best thing because it's killing the old people who are mostly skeptical. You know, things like that, they say. Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty crazy. Playing those things, you know? Yeah, and, and I mean, it's, I think when you look at this and what we've been talking about here, it's a really big challenge because, uh, you know, like saying someone's a climate denier has been become one of the you know harshest labels you can use against someone politically. Um, it, in addition, just looking at the the obstacle and what we're talking about is it, it sounds like if you try to push back on some of these policies, like you know the the other side of that you know is oh you don't care about the environment oh you don't you know actually you know you, you're you're living in the past or. Uh, you must be, you know, getting paid by like some oil companies or something, you know, it's, it has a very harsh downside. So it's really hard to correct the course of, of the environmental movement. And, um, you know, I appreciate why you come to my show here to, to share all these, uh, these facts and information. Um, it's what we do every day with my business. We try to make, you know, sensible, sustainable choices that make sense, you know, economically and just make sense in general, um, rather than, uh, you know, being sort of, oversteps or, or unrealistic. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough problem to solve is trying to push back against these aggressive and extreme um, environmental issues. Yes, it is sometimes seems an impossible problem to solve, Patrick. I'm not sure where it goes. This, it is interesting. This coronavirus has taken the, the emphasis away from the climate uh, uh, doomsday people. Uh, I mean, imagine saying the world is going to come to an end in 12 years uh, and, and that half the species are going to go extinct by 2050 if we don't completely destroy our entire situation. I, I, I just, 
can't understand how anybody even thinks that's worth listening to. Well, it's, it's they, persuasive the way it's framed. Uh, you know, you, they tell you, oh, there's going to be big storms and that's how you're going to know that it's coming. And then yes. you see a big storm and everyone points to this. You look at it, it's global warming. It's just, it's very persuasive the way it's been presented to people. Well, it's an interesting evolution. It started as global warming. And yes. then when it stopped warming for a while, they changed it to climate change. So everything that happens in the climate can be attributed to CO2. And now, you know, if you said, well, it was really cold last winter, they'd say, oh, no, that's just the weather, right? Yeah. yeah. Now all they talk about is the blasted weather. That's all you hear is extreme weather events. Yeah. And there, will all, there have always been extreme weather events, and there always will be extreme weather events. It, you know, it's, it's like wishing that the climate would become perfectly stable and every day was really nice and, and it was always the same forever. Yeah. You know, that's is, really not going to happen. This is a, a, a very active planet that we have here with an atmosphere uh, that, uh, you know, harms us sometimes. Yeah. And, and, and we shouldn't too. And we shouldn't expect, you know, uh, our cities on the coast, especially the ones below sea level, we shouldn't expect them to just be robust to nature and try to alter the course of nature to protect those cities. We should build more robust cities. Well, I say you only got two choices if the sea level does rise. Move to higher ground or hire the Dutch. Right? <laughs> what does hire the Dutch mean? Build dikes. Build dikes, okay. I mean, I, I've 20, also had... 20, 25% of Holland is below sea level. Oh, okay. Interesting. So they've just been really good at, at handling that. They're real good at it. Yeah, that's interesting. I've also... Uh, uh, talked about seasteading on the show before and you know just building floating cities uh you know seems to be another good alternative that that could potentially work someday uh which has some you know really smart people looking at the problem well there's there's lots of shallow water too uh like the whole uh, 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 i think it's osaka's airport uh the whole airport is artificial it was all water before and they've just built a huge island and and in the Middle East, they do a lot of that, too. Have you seen that? Yes. Those, those beautiful shapes they've made in the sea. And that's all, that's all been done by people. Uh, we can build cities so fast now. You know, imagine the Second World War when the whole of Europe was practically demolished. They had to build that all back. And even then, it didn't take as long as you would think. And now we can do it 10 times faster. So... If we have to move uphill, we'll move uphill. That's all there is to it. It will cost more money, uh, but it will be better than destroying the whole of civilization altogether. So you really have to look at the trade-offs that there are here. Uh, if, if for some reason the sea does rise, uh, it's probably only going to be about a foot by, 20, by 2100, that, that will still have some repercussions because people have built where it wasn't rising, risen a foot yet. Yes. Uh, but y there's nothing we can do about it is what it really comes down to because this idea that we are the cause of the sea rising is like believing that uh, Moses parted the Red Sea with a stick. You know, it's, it's not true that we should just think that we are the ones who are causing everything that happens and all the weather. And it, it's like the gods are angry, you know. So let's... Yeah. Let's 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 have a few sacrifices. It it is it is pagan, the way this is playing out, and it is a kind of pagan cult. 
if you look at those, uh, uh, what are they? Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, those guys. Yes. Yeah. They, they dress up in these costumes like a hundred of them are dressed up looking like a cross between a uh, in, Inquisition priest and a Star Wars character. You know, it's like modern theology of some kind. And it's not science. Well, that's the thing is there's be, it's it's almost like this mainstream science mainstream science which has you know been uh you know diluted from real science um and is becoming you know the way that people defend it is is near is it feels religious like when someone calls you a climate denier uh you know it it's so it's such a powerful label it's such a powerful uh you know thing to use against someone i can imagine you know it it seems to have the same manifestation in our uh sort of language and in our culture as if it was a religion that people took seriously yeah well i'm called that every day but i have a thick skin after a long career of uh, environmental <laughs> wars um but uh, it it is it is so frustrating uh to see how people are being brainwashed uh and you know you see prince charles meeting with Greta Thunberg. You see Al Gore meeting with Greta Thunberg. It's like as if the great titans of the world are meeting. These are, these people are just pure propagandists. They're, they're, they're not scientists. So the, the people who call themselves climate scientists, that is just code for the scientists that agree with me. Because I'm not, I'm obviously not a climate scientist. As a matter of fact, there's no such thing as a climate scientist. The cl climate science is a, a, a com composite of many different disciplines. It includes atmospheric chemistry, oceanography, astrophysics, uh, uh, and all of the greenhouse gas discussion. And and then they say, but it's basic physics. You know, like as if physics is basic. It's actually the most complicated, misunderstood, yeah. unknown in the world, how many people know, actually know how a greenhouse gas works? If you yeah, ask them, what, it's what, complicated. What does a greenhouse gas do? Well, a greenhouse gas captures the long wave radiation that is trying to go from the surface of the earth back to space where it came from, from the sun in order to balance the energy equation. Because if a planet is going to stay at the same temperature, it has to give off as much energy as it takes in. And so we have to give off all this energy every day, but it's in the form of long wave radiation because the earth is cold compared to the sun, which is hot, which gives off short wave radiation. The wavelength of radiation given off by a body is dependent on its temperature absolutely. It's the Stefan Boltzmann law. And so we give off long wave radiation and there's gases, including water vapor and CO2, water vapor being by far the most important one, that basically intercept that radiation and take it into themselves. It heats them up and then they give it off again in all directions. So part of it goes back down to the earth. Part of it does make its way eventually after hitting and hitting and hitting greenhouse gas molecules on the way out and being sent back and then sent out again. So what the greenhouse gas does is it slows down the cooling of the earth and makes it warmer than it would be if there were no greenhouse gases. How much warmer? 33 Celsius, which is 90 degrees Fahrenheit. 
the earth would be 33 degrees Celsius colder if it were not for the greenhouse gases. They are extremely important and we are calling them pollution. Wow. That's remarkable. So this is really one of the last things that I'm super curious about to hear your thoughts on is, uh, you know, like who stands to gain from these environmental policies? Is it, is it sort of just confusion run amok? Is it, uh, you know, regulations on a runaway train or, or who stands to gain from these, uh, you know, the green new deal and, and these agenda that's the, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the woke science agenda that's being, uh, you know, implemented or pushed very hard in, in, you know, countries in Europe and the United States and Canada, like who stands to gain from these things? It's a, it's a powerful convergence of interests among five key elites in society. The first one, they're not in any particular order, but let's start with the green movement itself and its fundraising. Uh, how, how many billions of dollars they take in every year, basically through fear campaigns by scaring people into, in, in, into being afraid they're, they're driving in their car and they're afraid that they're killing their children and that makes them guilty. So they send money. So that's the green movement. Secondly is the media. They are looking for sensationalism. That's how they get their advertising revenue is by viewers and viewers want sensationalism too, because no news is good news and all that sort of thing. Yep. Um, and then, uh, there's the politicians largely on the left, but not only on the left, there's lots of Republicans who are buying into the, uh, CO2 thing, uh, in, a, in a different way, but, uh, they're buying in so they can be part of that and, uh, and get the support of people who care about that. Uh, but the politicians are basically using it to say, we can save you from, from this. If you vote us in. And then there is the green businesses who are taking huge whacks of taxpayer money to be subsidized for doing things that, that they say will save the world. And so General Electric, for example, I'm not picking them out for any reason. There's tons of companies in this, but it's an easy one to see. They can get subsidies for their wind turbines and then they can write that off on the production of their fossil fuel turbines, their jet engines and stuff, right? So there's, there's big money involved in that. And lastly, there's the scientists, who the politicians are gladly paying to provide them with the stories to scare the people. And so, and Hollywood's in there too, but I'd include it with media, I guess. But you, it, could, it would be a sixth one if you saw them stand alone because the hypocrisy machine that is Hollywood, it, hypocrisy should be a tort in civil law. It should be like nuisance and the other torts in civil law, uh, which are not criminal, uh, but it should be punishable by fines and prison if you're really a bad hypocrite. And uh, Never heard that before, but I like it. Well, for goodness sakes, when you're a powerful person like Al Gore and you tell people that they should stop using fossil fuels and all this stuff, and you've got one of the biggest fossil fuel footprints on the planet, how can he sleep at night easily because he's a hypocrite? And if we made it illegal to be a hypocrite at that level, I mean, there should be standards, right? If you're telling, sure. if you're openly telling people you have free speech, of course, but if it's hypocrite free speech, 
there should be a price to pay. I mean, I, I, I don't tell people to do things that I'm not willing to do. I'm not a hypocrite. And most people aren't. But Much of the media would be out of business. They get away with it. Who would be? Much of the media. Yes, of course they would be. Yeah, well, they deserve to be out of business right now, the way they, the way they talk. I mean, I, I just find it despicable. The, the, the ones who are saying that the government isn't acting soon enough on the coronavirus, when, 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 when the U.S. government was the first one to ban the planes, the very first one, after being lied to by the Chinese all that time. And meanwhile, what were the other side doing? Impeaching him. Impeaching him or, or recommending people go outside. Yes. Yeah, recommending people go and eat Chinese food at a Chinese restaurant. Yeah, go that's to the parade Pelosi or whatever. Was doing. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's certainly hypoc- hypocritical. And, uh, you know, and, and they should, yeah, when... I mean, I'm half joking when I say it should be a crime, but actually I'm not. I'm only half joking. Uh, in in that sense, in that what? It, yeah, I'd like to see like social. It should be like a social crime. Like we we people who see the hypocritical actions should really hold them accountable. Just socially, we don't even need to get the justice system involved. We should just you know sort of outcast them for being so wrong. But it doesn't seem like that ever happens. Well, we could take the law into our hands and put them in stocks in a public place. The people could throw tomatoes at them. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh it's remarkable. I mean, overall, it it seems like such a it's a, it's a huge challenge facing us, especially as, you know, younger people are, are raised with these, you know, really scary outlooks on life as far as like what the climate could do to us. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to affect young people in this generation growing up today, especially when they become a voting age and when they are, uh, you know, in a position to make change in society. It's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out and to see if, uh, you know, sort of uh, the environmental realists, uh, I guess you could say. Um, I don't know if there's a better term for that, you know, or to we, see if they're we, able we to call it, We it. call it climate realists. Climate realists. Okay. Yes. Yeah, it'd be yeah, interesting to see of, if they're There's able a lot to... of people using that term on my side of the, of the fence. Got it. Yeah, I mean, something, just something, just, you, it kind of, you just need to hit the brakes or create a shortstop or something where we can take these threats seriously. We can examine, uh, you know, true environmental issues without overregulating or without, uh, you know, having the media hype it up, the, uh, you know, Hollywood evangelize it, have uh, the politicians try to save us. Uh, you know, it'd be really interesting to try to, uh, you know, look at this issue as, as one that really reaches into many different facets of life and psychology and try to, if we can address this one properly, I think we'll actually be on good track for addressing many issues uh, similar. Yeah, there's, there's not many good things about being old, but for me, one of them is I might not have to listen to this stuff much. <laughs> I think you can you can also say everything on your mind at all times, you know. Uh, so the younger people, we usually have to live with the repercussions for, for some time. So you may need to be cautious, but it seems like that's certainly an advantage. Yep, it, it is in some ways. Uh, it, lying should be illegal too, though, shouldn't it? I think it should. I think it should. At least, at least, you know, again, it's sort of socially, we should, we should enforce these things amongst our peers, but you know, we'll see how far that goes. Um, Patrick, I really appreciate your time today. Really appreciate, uh, you know, just sort of sharing all this information and talking about these things um, and, and hopefully giving the audience a new perspective on some of the, some of the environmental issues. And just to summarize for people once more, we, you know, clean air, clean water, you know, less pollution. We're, we're all for all those things. It's really the the uh, 
you know, the misconstrued or overhyped uh, existential disaster that needs to be reexamined. Um, and many of these invisible enemies, which need to be, you know, sort of deconstructed and examined closer before uh, acting irrationally with, with policy. Um, Patrick, could you tell them about your amazing book, uh, Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, and what you got coming out soon? Yes, my, my second book, uh, first one, Trees Are the Answer, is out of print for a while now. But Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, The Making of a Sensible Environmentalist, it's a, it's a big book. It's over 400 pages. But the, the first half of it is my history as an environmentalist in Greenpeace, the whole story of the first 15 years of Greenpeace, which is how long I was with it, longer than anyone else that started out with it by far. And, but I had to leave uh, and, and do some sensible things. Uh, the second half of the book is a discussion of all the environmental issues that are relevant today from chemicals to energy to climate change to species extinction to population. Uh, all those subjects are covered in what I think people will find to be a balanced and sensible way rather than a sensationalist extremist way, which is what we see so much of now. It's available on Amazon as an ebook for under $10. It's expensive as a paperback because it's a big book and has a lot of illustrations, but uh, I think you will find it worthwhile if you'd rather have a paperback to pay the price because it, it's selling very well even now after it's been on the market for quite a number of years now. And it, 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 I think it's because people are starting to wake up to wanting to get the straight goods on a lot of these issues that they are being sensationalized about. There's a lot of people who just go shake their head when people say the world is going to end in 12 years. I know there's lots of people who buy it too, but there's an, at least an equal number who don't, and, and rightly so. And this book explains why uh, we should take a more scientific, fact-based approach and that this woke environmentalism is not environmentalism at all, and it certainly isn't science at all. It is a kind of cult religion. And how they manage to make the word progressive uh, mean what they're saying, instead of they should have called themselves the regressives, I think, because uh, they are the exact opposite of progressive, as far as I can see. And that's a big part of their, of their um, operation is... Uh, Changing the meaning of words, twisting words around. And they got to be persuasive. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a propagandist approach to, to politics uh, and pretending that they're scientists, half of them. It's remarkable. Well, Patrick, I appreciate the work that you do. Looking forward to, uh, you know, continuing to follow you on Twitter, read your thoughts and things, and, uh, and hopefully we can connect again in the future. I re again, really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Patrick. Yes, on Twitter, I'm at EcoSense now. And any other places you'd like to uh, uh, direct people? I have a website, EcoSense.me. Uh, um, and uh, and my, my Twitter is where I really act, though. That's my, that's, that's my playpen. I, I managed to garner 106,000 uh, followers. Uh, I, th I think because I'm dealing with uh, truth in science and interesting things about the world and, 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 and successfully communicating to a lot of people things they maybe didn't know before. Uh, and and it's, it's a lot of fun 
uh, as well. Uh, to I, I, I use Twitter as a way of getting knowledge myself. I mean, there's so much information there, and if, you, if, if you're interested in, in the knowledge part of it, uh, it's there to find. Certainly. I, I can't recommend it enough. That's where I get all the, my, you know, I feel the best opinions and the best takes on things. I'm um, including your Twitter page. I'm glad that I found that and was able to, uh, you know, it brought in my horizons. I learned a lot and now, you know, we're able to sit here now and talk about some of these things in more depth and it's, it's a real treat. So definitely. Yeah, I've really, I've really enjoyed it. You've got a very measured tone, Patrick, and uh, very wide ranging uh, interests. Thank you, Patrick. Well, I'll be letting you know when, as soon as we post it and, and hopefully we can share it with the world. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please, Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.